Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. This passage concludes the first block of teaching recorded by Mark. Up until this chapter, and we'll see again after this chapter, that the content of Jesus' teaching is usually left out or reduced to a brief summary statement. But here, right in the middle of the first part of Mark's gospel, is a large block of teaching which provides the key to interpreting the narratives surrounding it. The parable of the sower, which began this block of teaching, explains the various responses that Jesus has received, from the devotion of his disciples, to the admiration of the crowds, to the misunderstanding of his family, and to the opposition of the Pharisees and scribes. The problem, for those who do not receive the word, is not with the message of Jesus. The problem is with the heart of those who hear the word preached. Not all people hear with understanding. The crowds were puzzled by the parables Jesus used in his teaching, but the true disciples asked Jesus about what they meant. They wanted understanding, and he was happy to explain the meaning to them as we see in the end of our passage today. The last sentence says that privately to his disciples, he explained everything. The setting for this collection of teaching is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus preached to a crowd of people on the shore from a boat, which seems like an odd choice for a pulpit. But the reason he preached from a boat was so that he could be heard by a great number of people. There's a natural amphitheater situated between Capernaum and Tabga, where the land slopes gently down to a bay, known today as the Bay of Parables. Though we don't know if that's the exact location where Jesus taught, Israeli scientists have verified that the shape of the bay can transmit a human voice effortlessly to several thousand people on the shore. And so it would be an ideal place to teach from. As he taught, he did so in parables. We discussed one last week. There are several more in our passage today. In the first, Jesus talks about a lamp. At least that's how our English translation renders it. But in the Greek, it's not a lamp, but the lamp. There's a definite article so that Jesus is saying, does the lamp come? in order to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Which begs the question, what lamp is he talking about? In the Old Testament, a lamp is frequently used as a metaphor for God, the law of God, the word of God, and the Messiah of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. 
As such, he's meant to shine forth and cast out darkness. In other words, his message, his person, his ministry is meant to be seen. He will reveal things as light casts out darkness. And this point is made with a simple illustration from daily life. Before the invention of the light bulb, when it became dark, you couldn't see anything without a source of light. Lamps, torches, candles were used daily. Now, it wouldn't make any sense to go through all the trouble of filling your lamp with oil and using flint and tinder to light the wick, only to then cover the light. No, it, it should be elevated to be useful. But if Jesus is the light and he has now come, then why aren't the people recognizing that? Isn't he shining before them? For the time being, the Messiah is hidden before the world's eyes. But the point of being hidden, as Jesus says, is to be revealed. And so the activity of God in Jesus is like a game of hide and seek. The point of hiding is to be found. The game's not fun if the person hiding is never found. Jesus is meant to be seen. But right now, his ministry is happening quietly, without people noticing or understanding. For those on the outside, the parables of Jesus are like the backside of a piece of embroidery, a mass of knots and tangles. But even if you can't discern the knots and tangles, you know that they must mean something. But it's only through investigation that someone might discover the finished pattern on the other side. Well, the parable of the lamp teaches us to investigate what is hidden, the gospel of Jesus, and to make it known. He's meant to be revealed, to be put on a lampstand for all to see. We, we shouldn't be ashamed of him. We should be proud of him. He's our savior. He's the most interesting thing about us. Well, the next bit of teaching borrows from a Jewish wisdom saying, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The saying has various forms, such as in the pot in which you cook for others, you'll be cooked. To this familiar saying, Jesus connects an economic principle. To the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Which seems unfair but it plays out naturally in economics. So much so that two familiar phrases capture it. It takes money to make money and being poor is expensive. It's a basic principle of life that inequality tends to be compounded rather than rectified. Now, Jesus isn't saying this as a basis for social or political action. He's simply illustrating the effect of teaching in parables. For those who take care to listen and ask questions to understand, they'll be rewarded proportionally. But for those who have no desire to dig deep into God's word, what little they do understand will diminish over time, just as relationships tend to drift apart when they aren't being cultivated. In other words, what you put into discipleship is what you get out of it. Do you value God's word? 
do you seek to understand the gospel? The more time you spend in God's word, the more treasure you will get out of it. And the more you get out of it, the more you will want to get out of it. And as the rich get richer, those who love the Lord will grow in discipleship. But if you fail to value God's word, then you'll eventually get to a place where you have less interest than you had initially. The second parable describes the kingdom of God. At first glance, it doesn't appear to be an impressive comparison. You might expect the kingdom of God to be like a golden palace decorated with diamonds, or like the top of a mountain, or a gorgeous sunset on the beach, or like one of the newly released photos from the James Webb telescope. But no. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to the routines of planting and harvesting. The kingdom of God is much nearer to us and much more like us than we might expect. Similar to the parable of the sower, except with the emphasis on growth rather than the soil. The farmer prepares the land and scatters the seed, but then he goes to bed. For the farmer, after planting, life goes on as usual. But something is happening without the farmer's help. The seed starts to germinate. It happens slowly, over days and weeks. And at first, the farmer is unaware of the growth. It happens underground, hidden from view. But then, one day, it appears. The earth seemingly produces by itself. The Greek word automate is used, from which we get the word automatic. Apart from human effort, the seed grows automatically. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. A harvest is eventually produced for the farmer to enjoy, all because he planted a seed. The only human activity in this parable, apart from sowing, is waiting in faith, with confidence that a harvest is to come. The kingdom of God is like that. Through gospel conversations with friends or strangers, you plant seeds, but the growth is not up to you. Sometimes you'll be aware of the growth. That's a blessing. But other times, perhaps more often than not, you'll have no idea how God used your words or actions. Several Several months ago, at our last presbytery meeting, I was reunited with an old friend. Much to my surprise, he shared with me the significance of something that I had said at a youth retreat some eight years ago. Though I was speaking to the youth, and he was a volunteer from another church, he remembered the words I said because they both convicted him and encouraged him. I had no idea where the seed I was sowing that weekend was landing but it was a blessing to hear about the fruit eight years later. Now, we don't always get to see the results of our labor, but we can trust that God uses our labor nonetheless. 
as the Apostle Paul put it, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. In fact, the Lord is the only reason why our labor has any effect. And Paul made that point to the Corinthians when addressing their tendency to have favorite pastors. He said to them that the individual pastor doesn't matter because neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And so whether you were the first to present the gospel to someone or the second or the third, it's the Lord who causes the growth which means that if there is no growth, it's not your fault. But also this parable assures us that growth may be occurring even if we don't see it. Our desire for immediate results makes ministry, teaching, and parenting difficult work. But don't be discouraged. The seeds, while they're hidden in the dirt, are growing. They're meant to be seen and will eventually become visible and produce harvest. So resist the temptation to write someone off as a hopeless cause, presuming that they're bad soil because they aren't yielding fruit. It's possible that the work God is doing in their life is simply slower than you'd like. It's a good thing the Lord is patient, much more so than we are. The last parable in this block of teaching is again a description of the growth of the kingdom of God. Whereas the last one emphasized the slow growth over time, this one emphasizes the contrast between the size of what is planted and the size of what has grown from it. The kingdom of God is compared to a mustard seed which Jesus says is the smallest of seeds on the earth. More than likely, he has black mustard in mind, which was grown for oil as well as for a condiment. Its seeds are only one to two millimeters long, but they can grow into a shrub or small tree with the height of 10 feet or more, which is unusually large for an annual. And so it would stand out in a garden of other annuals. Now, before I get further in my exposition, this is a great place to talk about a principle of biblical interpretation. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. From this and other verses about God's word, combined with the Bible's teaching on the nature of God, the doctrine of inerrancy has developed. That is the doctrine that scripture is without error. Simply stated, we believe that the word of God is true. Some people, in an attempt to explain this doctrine, have oversimplified it, saying that we believe the Bible is literally true. But that's not a helpful statement because of the various genres of the Bible. Metaphors, for example, are not literal. Jesus is not literally a door or a gate. When you reduce your understanding of God's word to the level of literal meaning, you miss out on the art of the language being used and are liable to being confused. Hyperbole, for example, is a rhetorical device 
not in error, which is important to know because Jesus frequently used hyperbole to emphasize truth. So when Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, he's not making a scientific statement. He's using it to refer to something proverbially small. That may seem like an odd mistake to make, but R.C. Sproul told of a New Testament professor he met in the 80s who taught at one of the largest seminaries in America and yet had abandoned his belief in the inerrancy of Scripture because, in his view, there was a clear mistake in this passage. He would tell his students, Jesus said that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds, but botanists have discovered seeds that are more minute than the mustard seed. This professor's faith in the truthfulness of God's word was shattered because he didn't understand hyperbole. But earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark wrote, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now, surely by the use of the word all, Mark didn't intend to suggest that every single man, woman, and child in Judea and Jerusalem, including invalids, came out to be baptized by John. The point is that many different people came out to be baptized, an impressive amount of people. Here, Jesus is making a dramatic contrast between the mustard seed and the large plant that grows from it. Like the seed, the kingdom of God arises from obscurity and insignificance. What is overlooked in the simple ministry of Jesus will soon be unmistakable. The kingdom of God is growing. Though he's been beset by opposition from religious leaders and misunderstanding from his followers, Jesus is not disheartened, distraught, or desperate. What is small now will grow, and it will bless others. In fact, birds will take up residence in the tree produced by the small mustard seed, which is a hint of God's grace to all peoples, because the Old Testament prophets have used the image of birds nesting in branches to allude to the inclusion of Gentiles among God's chosen people. The passage we read from Ezekiel about the great cedar used birds in that way to represent all the great nations coming to find rest. Though that cedar was the nation of Egypt and was ultimately chopped down, this mustard seed represents the kingdom of God, which is not under any threat. Rather, it's a source of comfort and shade to the birds. As I said earlier, these parables explain the narrative surrounding them. Some people respond favorably to the teaching of Jesus, and others do not. The problem isn't the message, but the soil. And the lack of apparent growth might not be the result of poor soil, but having the wrong expectations. Growth is slow, but sure. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. What is hidden will be seen. God causes the growth without our effort. And what is revealed in the end is not even recognizable in the beginning. May these parables increase your trust in God and not in your efforts 
or in what you can see or measure. God is working out a harvest, and in time, we'll be able to reap from the work that he has done in and through us. That's the good news of the gospel, and it's for you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 